What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate all things relating to history, mythology, philosophy, and how they bubble up into our popular storytelling. As always, I am very excited to be here. You know what's crazy? We took one week off, and it felt like I took five years off from the podcast. It's like I'm trying to learn how to ride a bicycle again, and I'm like, ugh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to stay uh, on my footing. I'm very, very uh, excited to be back in the studio. Well, on behalf of all of our listeners who listen in the United States of America, because we know a fair few of you listen in other countries, we hope you had a lovely and enjoyable Thanksgiving. We... We wanted to do a Thanksgiving episode, but then when we looked at our schedule for the week with our jobs and traveling and all we had to do, we realized it was logistically impossible. So we made a decision to not do a Thanksgiving episode like, like we did in previous years. But it was also nice to take a break because we haven't really taken one in a while. Yeah, and we're back now and we're refreshed and we're ready to uh, give you some more content, more podcast. So what are we talking about today? We wanted to kick off round two of the symbolic language of Star Wars. A few weeks ago, we started applying the Joseph Campbellian, Sigmund Freudian, Carl Jungian lens to our favorite Star Wars, the mecca of mecca of pop culture storytelling. And we discussed primarily what's now commonly called Episode 4, New Hope. We are going to, A, in anticipation of the rise of Skywalker coming just around the corner, we're going to talk about Empire Strikes Back. We're not going to reinvent the wheel. We're going to do a very similar stylistic episode to our New Hope one. We are going to apply the same lens, trying to decode the symbolic language of Star Wars in trying to figure out what makes it tick underneath the surface Why do we love it beyond just the great acting, the great action, the great special effects, and of course, the great music by John Williams? Right. Yeah, uh, we had a lot of fun discussing A New Hope a couple of weeks ago, and so we want to do this for the rest of the original trilogy. We know a lot of people uh, have that Disney Plus subscription and are going back and revisiting uh, the older Star Wars movies and binging them in uh, preparation for the rise of Skywalker. And so hopefully this will give you a little bit of fuel to continue your Star Wars rewatch. Yeah, I, I can't wait to talk about it. 
genuinely speaking, Empire Strikes Back is considered by many Star Wars fans to be the creme de la creme, the ultimate Star Wars movie, the greatest Star Wars installment. And there is a lot to this movie that we are going to talk about tonight. But before we get too deep into the weeds, before we really start rolling up our sleeves, I know we have a lot of news and a lot of ways that we're going to shamelessly plug for you to help us grow the podcast and maybe put a little uh, hard-earned money into our pockets, which we so desperately need. So, Laurel, do our shameless plugging. Well, if you wanted to line our pockets with the holiday season just around the corner, it is a wonderful time to visit our merch store because through the end of the year, we are running a uh, a promotion on our merch store for free shipping until January 1st. So if you want to score free shipping on any merch in our store, you're just going to use the code HOLLY at checkout, H-O-L-L-Y, as in deck the halls with boughs of Holly. Uh, so that can score you Midnight Myth, Wheel of Ka, Tees, Totes, Phone Cases, Onesies for Your Baby, uh, whatever you need. We've got it all for you. So definitely check that out. You'll find that on our website, which is www.midnightmyth.com. Click shop or just type into your browser bit.ly slash shop myth. Now, uh, also on our website, you will find blogs, you'll find extra content, you'll find a space to uh, sign up for our email list, which is where you'll be the first to know about sales in our merch store, new episodes, collaborations, giveaways, anything else that we have coming up. Uh, and you will also find a link to our Patreon. Our Patreon is a space where you can support us for a small monthly donation. And that donation helps us to offset some of our costs for equipment, for hosting fees, for advertising fees so that we can grow our audience. And if you do pledge a little bit every month, you'll get some perks, whether that's discounts on merch or bonus episodes or shout outs on the pod. So plenty of fun to be found there on Patreon. Um, otherwise, you can definitely check us out on social media to just stay uh, sort of in the know or get in touch with us if you ever want to share any feedback. We're always here to hear it. Uh, we are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we would love, 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 love to hear from you. And if you are feeling especially magnanimous this holiday season and you have five minutes to spare, but maybe not $5, the best thing you can do for this podcast is recommend it to somebody. Uh, and one of the easiest ways to do that is to just hit those five stars on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Takes very little time, but means a lot to us. Awesome. And uh, we're still doing the giveaway, aren't we? Yeah. I don't know if they've chosen a winner yet, but if you wanted to uh, get in at the last minute and enter our Star Wars Funko Pop giveaway with our friends, the Pop Venture family on YouTube, uh, all you'll need to do is go to their YouTube channel, which I will link in the show notes to the exact video you need to go to. Make sure you subscribe to their channel and then comment on that video, hashtag the midnight myth or hashtag midnight myth. Some way, let them know that we sent you there and you'll be qualified to get this mystery box of Star Wars Funko Pops. There's going to be some limited edition pops. It should be at least a $50 value and we'll throw in some Midnight Myth merch. So it'll be a great little gift around the holidays and a lot of fun to unbox. And on with the show. Yeah. Let us talk all things Empire Strikes Back. So the movie came out in 1980. It's the second installment in the original Star Wars trilogy I guess if you <clears throat> haven't seen Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back, 
Now is your spoiler wall, if I even need to say that. But yes, we will be spoiling this movie. Yeah, um, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's spoiler. (laughs) Anyway, moving right along, his father was, I guess, the conclusion of that. So now we all know. Great. Thanks for the education. You're welcome. Let's do a little bit of a recap. It may be a while since you've dusted off your old VHSs in your parents' basement and plugged it in. But if you now have a Disney Plus subscription, maybe you haven't quite hit stream there on The Empire Strikes Back. It it takes place pretty much right after the events of the first Star Wars movie where the Death Star has been blown up. The secret rebel hidden base on Yavin 4 has been exposed, forcing the rebels into hiding on the ice planet Hoth. There, the movie starts with Imperial droids, pardon me, who are probing the galaxy, searching for young Skywalker. They come across the rebel base. Luke Skywalker gets attacked by a snowman called a Wampa and gets trapped out in this freezy ice planet. Um, In that, he has a vision of his old mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, that he must find Yoda at the Dagobah system and continue his training in the Force. This is happening while simultaneously Han Solo is trying to leave to take care of a debt that he has to Jabba the Hutt, and there's a budding will-they-won't-they romance between him and Princess Leia. This all culminates with the Empire invading Hoth, destroying the base, and the rebels scattering. The rebels are, are, pardon me, Han and Leia are being pursued in the Millennium Falcon, and Luke escapes to Dagobah relatively unscathed after lots of rebels die in a very epic battle with the AT-AT walkers, also sometimes called the Adats. Long story short, um, to kind of go through the middle, Luke meets Yoda, who is a... amazing puppet played by Frank Oz who tests his patience and upends the expectations of what it means to be a Jedi teaches him the more spiritual and metaphysical ways that Luke should be um, balancing with the force. Luke promptly ignores his lessons and flies off to cloud city to try to save Han and Lola Han and Leia. Pardon me. Meanwhile, Han and Leia are being pursued by Darth Vader relentlessly through an asteroid field, despite the fact that Darth Vader is literally killing his men every time they fail and putting them in great jeopardy just to get this ship because he sees it as one step closer to getting Luke Skywalker. They have this amazing bit where they think they're in a cave in an asteroid and they're actually in a space worm, and they end up trying to escape to Cloud City, where Han wants to find his old smuggling, gambling scoundrel buddy, Landau Calrissian, who swindled someone into control over this cloud mining operation called Cloud City. There, all of the plot points emerge as Lando is secretly working with the Empire, hands over Han and Leia Chewbacca and C-3PO to Darth Vader, tortures them, which triggers Luke sensing it through the Force, and he goes to try to save his friends despite Force Ghost Obi-Wan and Yoda telling him he will be tempted to the dark side if he abandons his training. There we have lots of battles and hijinks. Luke confronts Vader, gets his hand chopped off, loses. Han gets encased in carbonite and sent to Jabba the Hutt. Lando decides he's actually going to help Leia and Chewbacca and C-3PO escape. In this, on their way out, Luke, with his hand chopped off, having just learned his nemesis, Darth Vader is actually Anakin Skywalker, his father, uses the Force to communicate with Leia, who turns the Millennium Falcon around, 
gets Luke out of his jam while he's about to literally fall into the void of a gas planet called Cloud City or Cloud Planet. I forget the name of the planet. Vespin. The name of the planet is Vespin. Ooh, well done. And yeah, pull that out of my ass. Or it might be Bespin with a V. Either way, but it's that's close. Saves Luke. They fly away. They rendezvous with the fleet. Luke is getting a robotic hand. Chewbacca and Lando are going to try to catch up with the bounty hunter and save Han. And Leia, Luke, C-3PO, and R2-D2 are just there in space waiting for the next chapter and Empire. Wow, that was a really good recap. A lot happens in you, this movie. Got, it's not easy to recap. You didn't lose a whole lot of detail, and you got some of the poetry about it. I'll say the only thing uh, that I would have loved to hear is about the Dark Side Cave, but I feel like we'll talk about that in our analysis. Well done. We most certainly will. Uh, just a real quick question for you. I do this in our Wheel of Ka Dark Tower podcast. Yeah. When we revisit a book, I always ask my other co-host, Steve, this. I want to ask you this. Empire is known as the greatest Star Wars movie. It is often considered to be the both the, the cinematic and artistic height of the entire saga. Having just rewatched it 2019 on the verge of Rise of Skywalker coming out, how do you feel? Does it hold up? It is simply so good. It is so, so good. You know, we've had this conversation a few times, and it'll be interesting after we've rewatched the the entire original trilogy from our perspective now to see how we feel about this. But I know that you and I uh, both kind of acknowledge Empire as the absolute best, uh, but we kind of like Return of the Jedi more for very, like, uh, silly and kind of selfish reasons. It's just like, it's our favorite because it warms our hearts with the Ewoks and the particular, um, the redemption of Darth Vader, those kinds of things. But Empire absolutely uh, continues to wow me with its just intricate detail. It's uh, it's melancholy, the, the bravery of having a, a middle segment of this uh, this franchise where the heroes lose where the main hero fails constantly again and again, where we don't leave feeling completely uplifted, but we have to dig deep and find that hope. Uh, I'm sure it was really jarring to see that in theaters, and I know that it was not as well-received uh, as uh, we might imagine that it was, considering now we regard it as the, the best of the original trilogy. I know it was not super well-received, um, uh, wait, wait, when you mean in when it first aired in 1980? Yeah, okay. yeah. I know people had some pretty strong reactions against it, uh, and that has kind of evened out over time. But just the cojones that it takes to uh, have this massive space epic end on such a somber note is is really admirable. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's not written and directed by George Lucas like the first one is though George Lucas is the executive producer and has a heavy hand over all of the creative decisions. Yeah, he has a story credit. You can really feel the um, the effects of a different filmmaker in this, from the way it is lit to the way that it transitions to the the complexity of the characters, that there is more going on in a human level in this movie than there was in the first. While the first movie has a ton of things to understand on the symbolic level, the deepness is really symbolic. The story itself is pretty straightforward, where this one isn't as simple and as easy to unpack. 
such as you mentioned the dark side cave that Luke goes into. There's not an easy explanation for that sequence. You have to really dig to kind of figure out what that means until the end of the movie when we realize that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. When you see the mask blow up and Luke sees his face in there, we realize that that is at least at part akin to their genetic relationship. If not, they're also their spiritual bond and, and connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I do think it holds up rather well. Um, There are a few things here and there going back, thinking from a contemporary lens. And I think the one thing that ages probably the worst in in Empire, Han really gaslights the shit out of Leia in this. It's not cute. Uh, The the sort of uh, tension and like they hate each other so much, which means they love each other kind of thing is, is not something that plays well today. Um, and it's something that Harrison Ford has been called out. I mean, not Harrison Ford himself. He didn't write the scripts, but like Harrison Ford characters tend to do this to women. Um, and it's really kind of gross to watch Han like cornering her uh, and belittling her and demeaning her into having uh, an attraction to him. It's, it's really strange. Other than that, I think it ages incredibly well. And there's a lot of good literature out there about Han Solo in particular and Leia's um, toxic relationships. We won't dive too deep into that, but we did have to say it. One of the interesting meditations that you get from a broader perspective about Star Wars is that typically the Empire represents mechanicalness, the coldness of space, the efficiency of you know, this fascist regime versus the more rustic, naturalistic, pluralistic, and accepting of nature rebellion. And and I think the ultimate tool that Empire does to recalibrate us into this universe and add to the story is to upend the expectations. And one of the ways in which it does that, in the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the movie... There is an Imperial drone, but it's not really a looming threat. You don't really even know what it is. We, the audience, does, but the characters don't. They spend the first, you know, 20 minutes of this movie or so battling the elements of Hoth, trying to establish a base, trying to set up a perimeter, having the local, you know, Wampas attack our hero and nearly eat him in the first minute, and then using technology as a way to circumnavigate and get around that. And I think it kind of upends this idea that the rebellion is purely about this rustic naturalism. It's about its connection to nature. Well, when you put yourself into the frozen waste of Hoth, that connection to nature ain't so pretty. Right. And, uh, you know, there's this kind of interesting moment where we've got this chosen one figure in Luke Skywalker, who, when you've got him on, uh, you know, his own planet of Tatooine, where he is comfortable, where... It's a desert where he's a moisture farmer, where he has some control over uh, even even a hostile landscape. We put him in a, uh, you know, the polar opposite uh, kind of landscape that is hostile in a different way. And this chosen one figure almost doesn't make it out of the first act because he can't fight the elements because the temperature's dropping and he is succumbing to uh, the elements and to exposure 
and because there are monsters roaming this landscape that he is unable to see coming, despite having a supernatural ability. So uh, we have this interesting moment where we're like, is, is our hero like not able to make it just through the countryside? Um, so I think that's interesting that you bring that up, that uh, the, the rebellion is usually much more tied to this sort of democratic, pluralistic, we are close to our people and close to our land, uh, whereas the empire is much more institutional, is usually in a, a man-made spacecraft. Uh, and yet the guys that we're closest to have to face off against those elements and almost don't make it out. And it also introduced the first, I'd say, of Luke's three caves. He has to encounter three cavernous, the first being the Wampa Cage, the second being the Dark Side Swamp Cave, and the last being the cavernous belly of Cloud City, which ultimately ends with him you know, dropping aimlessly down into that cave and understand that last cave as much more of a metaphoric rather than a literal. What do you think the first cave, the Wampa Cave, is about? Or if you don't want to answer that question in a broader sense, why so many caves? Well, I'm glad that you you brought up the caves because it's also we have Luke uh, experiencing this sort of cavernous adventure where he's going deeper and deeper into uh physical material and uh, metaphysical caves. But the other characters are doing so as well. We have uh, Han and Leia and Chewie and C-3PO descending into cavernous uh, environments as well. So they are going into what they think is an asteroid and then find themselves inside the belly of this space worm and they kind of wander around outside of it, and it's full of these kind of dinosaur-like pterodactyl creatures, so they feel like they're inside of a cave. Uh, So it's a symbol that recurs throughout this movie uh, in very literal ways and very metaphorical ways. And I think it's uh, on a broad level symbolic of the fact that uh, this film, uh, in contrast to A New Hope, is much more interested in digging into the psychology of our characters uh, and into uh, the subconscious or the unconscious of our characters. Uh, It's interested in breaking down our assumptions and uh, helping us to understand them on a much deeper and more symbolic level. So we, uh, we, we get to understand them as we would in a myth or a dream. Rather than just archetypes, we get to know what's going on underneath the surface. Well, it's almost like when Luke lands on Dagobah, one of yeah. the first things he says is there's something strangely familiar. It's like it's like it's out of a dream. A very significant line. I, I'd like to hone in a little bit more about the cave. One thing that it at least calls into mind is Plato and Plato's cave. And I'd like to discuss very briefly Plato's cave. We've talked sure. about it at length in other podcasts before, so I don't want to beat a dead horse. But if you're not familiar, Plato wrote down the words of Socrates, the great Athenian philosopher and teacher. And one of the ideas that Socrates played with is the cave. And the idea is that if you were chained in a cave and behind you there was a fire and everything you saw on reality were just these shadows on the cave, that these would thus become your reality. What happens when your bindings are broken, you are finally free from this cave? And you now see this other world for the full time, for the first time. The idea is to emphasize that part of our perceptions of this world are just echoes or shadows of forms of the true selves, that we are living in this cave. And I think 
the three caves of Luke, first the Wampa, which is raw naturalism. It is him versus the elements. It is him out there by himself without aid completely for the first time. And what is it? It's hostile and threatening. He thinks he understands what's going on. He thinks he has a grip on, on who he is and what he's supposed to do. I am a fighter in this rebellion. I'm setting a perimeter. And then wham, here comes this wampa. He's watching his Tauntaun get devoured by this creature. And he has to step out of himself, out of the role, out of the identity of the combat commander Skywalker and into the Jedi. He touches the force and uses the lightsaber to escape and save his life, finding himself in another dark cave of the blizzard, you know, wandering aimlessly. The next cave is at Dagobah, in which Luke asks Yoda, what's in that cave? And Yoda replies, only what you take with you. And what does Luke do? He straps on his weapons, taking his weapons into this cave. Now, this is a more entering the actual threshold moment. He has his mentor there. He is training in his exercises. He's struggling to understand the difference between the light side and the dark side of the force. And he senses this cave and Yoda says he has to go, right? And what does he see? Darth Vader, who he battles, and then he chops off his head, symbolically castrating him. And in it, he sees his face under the mask. If we add both of these preparatory caves, Luke then descends into Cloud City. And in Cloud City, there's a cave that he is ushered into, except it's designed to freeze him in carbonite that he must escape out of. And the idea being that Luke's entire reality has been a shadow on a wall. He has seen what Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen have taught him to see. He has then seen what Obi-Wan has taught him to see. He's seen what the rebellion has taught him to see, that he is this fighter, but he's never actually seen the raw, real reality, which is his father is alive and his father is second in command to a galactic fascist empire, that his father is the evil god of our subconscious nightmare. He is Kronos incarnate. He is Zeus striking down with thunderbolts anyone and everyone that gets in his way, just saying... I will do what I want when I want. His father is unchecked raw ego and narcissism. And here he is living his life, looking at the shadows of the wall, looking at these realities that have been painted for him by other people. And it is in the descendant into the cave where he gets closer each time to the truth. The first time he confronts the Wampa, just an animalistic vision the second time he confronts an actual dream version of his father, upgrading it a little closer to reality. And then the third time he confronts his actual fucking father and he almost like Zeus gets devoured by Kronos. I know I use Zeus and Kronos both as the same metaphor for Vader, but flipping them around, you know, just you get my point here is that the raw unchecked ego of the angry father God is what he is fighting in each cave, each time he goes into the cave. And in the inverse of Plato, as he gets into the cave, he's getting closer and closer to the truth. Wow. Okay. Wow. 
Um, that was amazing. And I agree with you 100%. This is an identity breaking moment for Luke, the revelation that Darth Vader is his father. And I know we're skipping, you know, to the, the third act of the movie at this point, but I think, uh, actually as a kind of fulcrum for our podcast, this is the most important moment in Star Wars, right? Like this is the biggest deal in Star Wars is the revelation that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. And that happens in this movie, The Empire Strikes Back. The most important moment in one of the most important film franchises of all time. One of the most important moments in film. Just want to meditate on that for a second and say, what does it do for our character and what does it do for our universe? And it breaks his identity. It turns him from the hero that he thinks he is into a different kind of hero going forward. Uh, and this will have serious repercussions. Uh, there's another thing that I'm thinking of that I want to bring into this uh, that I think happens to Luke when he gets this revelation. And that brings us to Campbell and Freud uh, and their interpretation of mythology. Uh, and Campbell actually quotes this. There's a great Sigmund Freud quote uh, where he says, all neurotics are either Oedipus or Hamlet. And in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell applies that to uh, many of the heroes of the hero's journey that he is writing about. And I think it's useful for us with Luke, whether you agree with that on a psychoanalytical level or not, um, because Luke, for the majority of... A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back is Hamlet. Um, and I say that because, you know, if you're familiar with Hamlet, the key points of this character are uh, that he is often engaged in deep, deep contemplation or swift, impulsive action. He is a sort of uh, bundle of contradictions in that he's either thinking so hard he can't act or acting so quickly he can't think about it. Uh, that's Hamlet in a nutshell, and people have been puzzling over what Hamlet's deal is for 500 years, so uh, obviously go and read more about him if you want more complexity. But he's driven by a desire to avenge his father uh, against the you know wicked Claudius, his uncle, who has usurped the throne and married uh, the queen. And Luke, in these first two movies, is driven by a similar desire to avenge the father that he believes was murdered by Darth Vader uh, and to you know, become the hero who is able to liberate the rebellion from this evil empire that Darth Vader presides over. What do we see Luke do in this movie? We see him go to Dagobah, which is a space of deep contemplation, a space where he has to learn a different side of the force that is not about combat, that is not necessarily about doing all of the time. It's often about breathing and thinking and uh, getting out of a space of, of actual fighting. Um, and that's difficult for him. He doesn't want to think all the time he wants to do, but because he's thinking so hard, he can't lift the X-Wing out of the swamp. He can't go save his friends because he's engaged in deep contemplation, much like Hamlet uh, thinking, I'm going to kill Claudius now, but then overthinking it and missing his moment. The second half of this movie, he decides to act swiftly, go save his friends, which is very much like Hamlet just stabbing somebody through a curtain thinking it's Claudius and accidentally killing the wrong person. 
He fails at that too. Luke fails when he tries to do because he's not thinking. So he's very much in this space of vacillating between contemplation and action, uh, but driven by a personal sense of uh, longing for revenge. At the moment of revelation, though, once he comes face to face with Darth Vader, with that ultimate truth you were speaking of, he shifts. He stops being Hamlet because the identity of a person who is able to avenge his father is broken. There is no father left to avenge. There's only a father to defeat. And that's when he becomes Oedipus, the character who is destined to kill his father. Uh, so I think that's just an interesting uh, other way to sort of uh, decode that moment and what's happening uh, on an archetypal level there. Yeah, very interesting. Very, very cool. Did you have anything that you wanted to add to the sort of uh, cave metaphors or the uh, Darth Vader revelation thing before we move on? Uh, I could talk about it all night, to be perfectly truthful with you. I, I think the stuff that you just said about the Hamlet Oedipus kind of blew my mind a little bit. Well, it'll I, be really, interesting to track into uh, Return of the Jedi, at least. Yeah, and it's definitely marinating. I may have a thought afterwards, but right now I'm just kind of digesting the idea of Luke Skywalker's character arc as from Hamlet to Oedipus, and I think that's just fucking brilliant. Well, and the kind of funny thing about that, this is a, uh, just a little side note here, is that Ernest Jones, who was a fellow psycho and, uh, uh, psychoanalyst, and a friend of Freud's and later a biographer of Freud's wrote a book called uh, Hamlet and Oedipus. And that was all about how Hamlet actually is Oedipus. And he wrote a reading of the character where this is actually a, a prince who is motivated by a latent desire for his mother and uh, to overtake his father's throne. So kind of an interesting parallel there. But I would love to uh, move on to uh, the, the meat and the bones of this movie and something that I think is still one of the most powerful uh, impressions ever left on a franchise is the introduction of Yoda. I uh, cannot wait to talk Yoda. So I would love to talk about Yoda, where he comes from, the place that he lives, what that represents, and what he teaches Luke. Uh, and we now live in a world with baby Yoda, so let's go back to where it all started. Yeah, and if I may say, I think the best expectation, reversal, upset, jaw-dropping moment, everyone, Luke Skywalker included, expected Yoda to be like Obi-Wan Kenobi on steroids. It Like Sylvester Stallone with a lightsaber, right. let's go defeat the Empire. And to have this little green Muppet played by Frank Oz was one of the best twists and turns and probably one of the best thematic decisions I've seen in cinema. And it's so iconic. Yoda is one of, if not my favorite characters of all Star Wars. Yeah. So let's just dive into Yoda, Dagobah, and you take the lead, Laurel. Well, uh, I love that you you mentioned that kind of surprise of the introduction of Yoda. And a lot of rewatching Star Wars is sort of getting back into the mind space and being like, I know all of this stuff, but what if I was watching it for the first time? And when you do that, you get so many delightful surprises. Um, and Yoda is introduced kind of as this sort of fairy tale trickster. He's the hermit that you meet on the road who's supposed to show you the way to the great teacher, but turns out he is the great teacher in disguise. Uh, so I just absolutely love that. 
but I'd love to talk about his surroundings to get us started because I think they do also have a very interesting Campbellian parallel in what's known as the world navel. Uh, Campbell talks about this, but it's a major mythological motif across all cultures and mythologies uh, and religions and uh, everything, cosmologies. Uh, and it's also sometimes known as the axis mundi. Uh, and it basically represents a center of the world or a center of the universe and a source of some life-giving energy. Uh, so usually uh, the, the world navel, that, that word itself uh, refers to uh, like the umbilical cord, which literally nourishes you in the womb, uh, or the axis mundi, which is the other term for it, uh, is like the axis of the entire world. So the four directions will spin out from it. Everything else is in relation to it. Would the Yggdrasil, the world tree of Norse? I was exactly about to say that. Oh, so I'm world sorry. Trees, no, that's perfect. So you totally got the point. The world tree, uh, especially Yggdrasil or the world trees of like Mesoamerican mythology will have this sort of function. But also mountains like Mount Olympus would be an axis mundi. Uh, Mount Fuji, even skyscrapers can be axis mundi. Like it, it's a very wide and broad symbol that can be applied to a lot of different things. Uh, but it's sort of a microcosm where all good things and all bad things can live together. Uh, Campbell has a quote about this that I'd love to read. He says, quote, The world navel, then, is ubiquitous, and since it is the source of all existence, it yields the world's plentitude of both good and evil, ugliness and beauty, sin and virtue, pleasure and pain are all equally its production, end quote. Now, I would argue that Dagobah serves the purpose in The Empire Strikes Back of the world navel or axis mundi. It is a uh, space of, like I said, contemplation. Uh, it is the center of, it's the center of the movie. It's the center of Luke's universe for a little while. It's the center of Yoda's universe. And it is the uh, place closest to the life-giving energy, the force. It is a place that is strong with both the light side and the dark side of the force, as evidenced by the dark side cave that Luke enters later. Uh, what I think is sort of interesting and different about this representation of the world navel is that usually it'll be associated with a tree or a mountain or something, or a dark tower, if you're listening to the Wheel of Ka, some kind of nexus that is close to heaven that can sort of serve as a, a bridge of the gap between the earthly and the divine realms. And this isn't that. This is a swamp. So what we have instead of reaching for the heavens is a place where it's partially submerged. So we've got trees reaching up, and then we've got, you know, half of this realm you can't see because it's underwater. And, you know, fish and sharks and uh, serpents can slither around unseen. So I think there's a very interesting thing going on with uh, Dagobah as this world navel. I totally agree with that. And in many ways, we can see, we discussed in the last uh, Star Wars episode that water is typically a representation of the subconscious. And what do we see of Luke's ego, his X-Wing, the thing that he uses to defeat the Death Star, uh, like a representation both of his, you know, his phallic manliness. Yeah, and his combat ability. And his prowess and the thing that he uses to win the last movie 
sinks into the murky swamps of his subconscious. And the further deeper it goes, the further Luke feels alienated and removed and disconnected from himself. And the worse he starts to do in the spiritual training that Yoda is trying to um, tutelage him in. And then we talked already about the cave as the Axis Monday of the dark side, the place where the evil energies of the universe come from. And then in this sort of swamp, this literal swamp of Luke's messy subconscious, there is a guide to get him through it, which is the most unusual and peculiar of mages, the, the wonderful magician, the wonderful Buddha, Yoda. Yeah, well, great choice of words there. He is a Buddha. Uh, and the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha sat and became enlightened is a typical world naval axis mundi. So it's all kind of coming together there. Um, and and this figure of Yoda is the caretaker, is the steward of this this sacred space. Yeah, could we talk a little bit about Yoda philosophically and how I do think he resonates with Buddhism. Yes, please. Now, I'm going to caveat this with I am not a Buddhist. I have read some Buddhist literature and some Buddhist philosophy. I find it to be personally very inspiring and moving, um, but I'm probably going to be to the Buddhist out there pretty crude in the way that I describe it. Okay. But first I'd like to introduce some ideas of Buddhism and then I'd like to connect them to ideas that Yoda himself talks about, if you'll permit me. Absolutely. So Buddhism is a, uh, it's a unorthodox Indic religion. An unorthodox Indic religion means that it is a religion that does not practice traditional Vedic sacrifices. The Vedic sacrifices are ancient animal sacrifices practiced by the ancient Hindus and the ancient Hindu religion. And the idea was there's all of these gods and you do these ornate and elaborate sacrifices to these gods and they will give you material benefit, whether that's rain for the harvest, safe passage on a trip, personal riches and wealth. A orthodox Indic religion such as Hinduism says that these Vedic sacrifices are divine in nature even if they refute and do not participate in them, or even if they say it's immoral to participate in them, they recognize their sacred and divine nature and say, if you perform these sacrifices to the letter of the sacrifices, they will work. A unorthodox Indic religion refutes the divine nature of these sacrifices. It says these sacrifices are not divine. They will not work. There's no point in doing them and outright rejects it. Think of it in the terms, if you're a Christian, the difference between the Protestant Reformation and Catholicism, a fundamental break at the core level of what the religion is based on. That's an unorthodox Indic religion, and Buddhism is an unorthodox um, Indic religion. And Indic means that it ultimately comes from India. Right. It is soteriological which is soteriological religion, is a religion that is about the salvation of an individual and about alleviating their suffering. The core philosophical idea of Buddhism is we suffer, why do we suffer, and why, and how do we stop suffering? And a Buddha is not an actual one person. Any person could become a Buddha if they achieve nirvana, which is the state of escaping the suffering. The other idea, we've talked about this in the podcast before, is the thing called the samsara, 
which is the cycle of life and death people are trapped in. And this cycle is inherently about suffering. So if you are a trapped in this, you could still be a god. You could be trapped in the cycle of samsara. And because you're trapped in it, you are suffering. You escape this, and then you have achieved nirvana, and then you have become a Buddha. But a Buddha can't just achieve nirvana on their own. They have a duty to teach others how they got there to help others get to nirvana. The Buddha that we think of when we think of Buddhism existed probably somewhere around the mid-5th century before the Common Era or BCE, but that dates a little, you know, no one's 100% sure. Right. So a long fucking time ago, and taught the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, which is a series of different steps that people can do that they can practice in order to help them achieve nirvana. But there are some core tenements to Buddhism that we see um, through Yoda. One, Yoda talks about the interconnected nature and respect for all life. It is a fundamental Buddhist sentiment that everything that lives is connected and interconnected and through that interconnection deserves a fundamental amount of respect and has a fundamental divine quality to it. From a blade of grass to a fly to a a flower to a snake in a swamp to a force-wielding Jedi Knight. Everything is interconnected because they are alive. Life is inherently divine. And he says, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. A very Buddhist idea. Um, Yoda also talks about alleviating suffering through calm. When you are at peace, when you are passive, A Jedi will use the force for knowledge first and defense second. Well, Buddhism teaches that you need to balance yourself from both your elements to be both a wise and compassionate person. These are two elements that are fundamental to putting into harmony because if you are just overly compassionate, you might be a lovable fool. And if you are overly wise, you might be cold-hearted and antithetic and uh, ruthless in the ap- in the application of your intellect. It's only when you balance your compassion and your intellect that you can start walking the eightfold path. Well, Yoda represents this idea of this balance, calm, peace, passive, knowledge, defense, and he balances everything in these couplings where there's this and the opposite. There's the light and the dark. When Luke asks Yoda, Is the dark stronger? He says, no, it's quicker, it's easier, it's more seductive. It's earthly in its very nature. It's about giving you what you want. It's about accepting the Vedic sacrifices as true and using them to get what you want, and that's seductive. However, rejecting what you want, rejecting your own individual desires, is the start to alleviating the suffering. What is Darth Vader if not a walking manifestation of suffering? Everywhere he goes, everything he touches, when you see the, the, just the shot with his helmet off, you see his mangled and you know blistering skin. When somebody displeases him, he egotistically and narcissistically murders them for pleasure of, uh, and as a, as a military discipline tool, murders top-ranking admirals and commanders in his army 
He is in the embodiment of suffering. His body suffers so poorly that it must have a machine teach it how to breathe. Juxtapose that to Yoda, whose body is frail, and it's small, and it's soft, and it's not at all physically imposing. But But it's 900 years old. And it's not suffering. Yeah. It's in balance. He's in harmony, you know? And so we see these, this, this Buddhist element to the Yoda echoing through his philosophical teachings to Luke. And Luke 100% doesn't get it and is completely surprised. He thinks he's going to get a dashing Obi-Wan Kenobi-style warrior, but better. And here is this soft, calm, and meditative Buddha trying to teach him that there's a better way then that way starts. And okay, this is the central point to Buddhism. Where does suffering come from? It is rooted in one's desire because I desire things. I want things and I try to get those things. There will always be things that I cannot get that I desire. Hence, I will be in pain. Now that can be understand understood materialistically. It can be understood through um, like, I want more wealth but I can't ever get enough wealth, so I get more wealth and more wealth. I become Ebenezer Scrooge, and I become an old miser, and I'm unhappy, and I'm old. Or I want cookies because I love cookies, and all I do is eat cookies, and I eat cookies so much that I end up becoming diabetic. And oh, now, poor cookie you know, monster. Yeah, you know, I end up with, with a sugar-based disease because I've had too many cookies. You know, and these are all simplifications. Yeah. And I'm just very crudely touching on the principles of Buddhism. But I do think uh, there's something Buddhist to Yoda. It stands in contradiction to Darth Vader and the way that Darth Vader operates. And I think Luke is legitimately stuck between these poles. And he, at the end of this movie, it's not really clear where he's going to end up. I think that's a really good point uh, because... Both Darth Vader and Luke are sort of in opposition to the institutions that they're part of uh, because they are, in this movie, not fighting for a collective goal. They're fighting for a personal goal. Uh, They both want to confront each other. Uh, Luke really wants to fight Darth Vader, and Darth Vader really wants to find Luke Skywalker, and they want to face off against each other. Whereas the Rebellion has these grand, you know, ideas of instituting a new republic, and the Empire is like, we have to take over and become more and more uh, powerful and consolidate our power. But these two very powerful figures are fighting for their own desires. And so Luke is uniquely susceptible to the seduction of the dark side. And that is why uh, the force ghost of uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda are so concerned about him when he leaves his training. Uh, This comes back to, again, trying to feel like you're watching this for the first time. Uh, Because you know that Luke Skywalker is going to win the day eventually. You know he's the hero. It's going to be okay. He's not going to go to the dark side. But if you're watching this for the first time, you don't know that. And if you you really get your head into this and you watch Luke uh, hearing the information from Darth Vader and being offered a place at his side to rule the galaxy, you don't necessarily know that he's going to jump. And it is a very thin line that he walks between being uh, you know, the, the ascetic who is still 
uh, on the side of Yoda and still able to attune to knowledge and defense and the one who is ready to take his father's hand. Totally. And, you know, we talked about this in preparation for the podcast, how tempting Vader's hand must have been. Though he is disgusted by him, him, Luke being disgusted by Vader, finding out his father is alive and wants him back in his life has to rock you at your, your psychological core. You've gone through an entire, this is why I go back to the cave. He's been looking at shadows on the wall and suddenly sees the true form of reality for the first time. Yeah. And it's terrifying. His father, he is the angry God of his subconscious and literally chops his hand off and lets him pummel, you know, through to cloud city into these dark tunnels of his own mind to left hanging near lifeless on the verge of death with nothing but just a prayer that Leia can hear him to save his life. I mean, that is a low moment, both literally and philosophically and through the, um, you know, the symbolic language of star Wars, you can't put him any lower without actually killing this character. Yeah. That's the only worse it could get. And you really don't know how it's going to shake out at the end of this movie. It leaves the question open like, whoa, Luke's father is Darth Vader. What's going to happen next? Yeah, it's it's absolutely um, uh, shocking and amazing. Will Luke follow the path of Yoda and use the Force wisely, or will he go the quick and easy path as Vader did and become an agent of evil, as Yoda warns? And it's so on- ominous. The directing in this is so good. When Yoda is warning Luke, that, you know, you'll become an agent of evil and the ship, the X-Wing starts to take off and Yoda goes, you know, told you did I, reckless is he. And Obi-Wan goes, that boy's our only hope. And Yoda's like, no, there's another. And it turns red. Like Yoda is red and you're like, oh my God, this looks so ominous. No, there's another being like, well, if Luke dies, there's another hope. Yeah. Being like, Luke might die. <laughs> like that's foreshadowing after Luke cuts off his own head in the cave. You're like, holy shit, this, this character might not get out of this. Yeah. Now we know now because of years and years of being star Wars fan that yes, he does. And yes, he does triumph in the next movie, but they do a, they do a really good job in both literal and symbolic terms, putting Luke through this, this no longer he's no longer in this extended adolescence of the first one. He's now traversing the swamp, the frozen tundra. He is now walking through the like idyllic cloud city, which is not at all Olympus. He's at the Axis Mundi and he's made it to Olympus. Yeah. He's at there where the gods themselves should live, and it's just a smuggler running a fucking scam who has sold all of his friends out to the empire. And you know, the Axis Monday to Olympus does not get him anywhere closer to where he needs to be. He is now a full adult and he is now in this uncertainty of life where nobody knows the outcome. Every decision that you make has huge, huge ramifications. And like all of us, he's just hanging on the end being like, Ben, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, and we've all hung on that and just been like, Ben, 
uh, well, someone, Ben. <laughs> I made a really bad choice. I don't know what to do. I'm, ha- I'm hanging over the clouds of Cloud City. That is so relatable. There's no gods here. My head's been chopped off. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, but I do think that is a a very universal experience. People reaching adulthood, they have this vision of themselves and it gets chopped down really quickly. You see yourself as Hamlet and you've been Oedipus the whole time. Right. You know, and it gets chopped down really quickly. And there you are being like, how the fuck do I pick up the pieces from this? Where do I go? I think is the relatable experience beneath the surface of empire, which is part of the reason so many people love it and relate to it because we've all been there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Um, and it's it just shows again the contrast with a new hope, which so clearly goes along this uh, you know this hero's journey that that Campbell laid out, but this sort of symbolic journey from adolescence to uh, adulthood or at least uh, maturity. And this movie, Empire, doesn't do the same thing. It doesn't give us a you know a very clear like road of trials, uh, return to your world with the boon. It's got a much murkier, much cloudier, uh, you know, pardon both of those puns, uh, experience for Luke where he's now navigating adulthood but doesn't feel any more in control. He feels uh, in some ways uh, less in control than he was before. In the first movie, Luke crosses the threshold from Moisture Farmer to Commander Skywalker. And we meet Commander Skywalker in the start of this movie and he tries to cross the threshold from Commander Skywalker to Jedi, and he fails. Yeah. And we, and that, to me, we have all been there, where we've, like, we had this thing that we thought we were going to be. We fought to get there, and we fucked it up, and we didn't get there. We've all tried to be Commander Skywalkers to Jedi, and we've all ended up being like, I don't even know this Jedi thing makes sense anymore. Yeah. And the next movie is going to complete the cycle where he will finally cross to become Luke the Jedi. And we will see Luke the Jedi when we do our Return of the Jedi episode. Yeah. Um, This has been a super fun conversation. I think we got into some really uh, interesting caves of our own. Uh, Did you have any other final thoughts before uh, before we wrap up tonight? I can't wait for Rise of Skywalker to see how this new trilogy will end up and... I can't wait to talk about it. I adore and love talking about Star Wars. This has been, for me, you say fun. This was a challenging episode for me to really wrap my head around because there's so much. I hope you lis- you listeners enjoyed it. Dear Midnight Myth listeners, let us know what you think. We got it all wrong or got it all right. I want to know. Yeah, uh, and we will see you soon for Return of the Jedi. And until next time, guys. Be kind. And may the force be with you.